This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot. And they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May. And again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates. And that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the US. My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, Listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director Will Ayers. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorne is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on Sign In, and then Create a New Account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorne, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show veteran Marine, criminal investigator, and member of the Marines boxing team, Amelia Lara. 
Now, what makes this conversation so powerful is Amy served at Camp Lejeune during the 1980s, and tragically, she is one of half a million Marines that have suffered medical consequences from drinking the contaminated water at that base. So we discuss a host of topics from her journey into the military, the role of the military police officer, sexual assault, some of the key cases she investigated, her transition out, and the heartbreaking terminal cancer diagnosis she's living with today. So before we get to this incredibly powerful and important conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 750 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Amelia... Lara. Enjoy. Well, Amy, I want to start by saying thank you to Sue Shepard for connecting us and to welcome you onto the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Sue, very much. That was very awesome of her. So as an icebreaker, you were telling me what an incredible high school class you have. So before we even get into your journey, tell me about this incredible group of humans that you happen to go to school with and what you still do today, decades later. Yeah. So we graduated uh, from a very small town in Indiana called Hobart, Indiana, um, the class of 82. Um, most classes here don't have reunions or they're every 10 or 20 years. Our class still has one every five years. And then because we love each other, and I mean that totally, truly, we love each other so much that on milestones, like we started with our 50th birthday. So above and beyond our five-year uh, reunions, we do a 50th birthday party of 55, and they'll have a 60th and a 65-year birthday. Um, when my class found out I was sick, they arranged to where we, uh, when I was home saying my final goodbyes to everyone, they arranged this beautiful, like, just sit down, get together, have some lunch, drink a couple beers. Um, they're an incredible group of people. They sound absolutely amazing. I think I was telling you when we were talking that my wife um, just lost one of her friends to cancer. Another one is is battling cancer at the moment. But again, that group of uh, women have been extremely tight since uh, I think middle school, actually. So it's beautiful to see those tribes still connecting decades later. Right. So I would love to start at the very beginning. So you talked about Indiana. So tell me where you were born, and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Um, I was born in Gary, Indiana, um, lived my entire life in Hobart until I joined the Marine Corps. Um, I have my mom and my dad. My dad has 15 children. My mom has four. Um, my mom has already lost two children. I'll be the third child she loses. Um she worked in the x-ray field her whole life. 
My dad was um, a service member as well. He was in Korea where he was a POW. He came home with a lot of hidden um, problems. They We now call it PTSD. They called it shell shock back there. Um, so, yeah. Yep. Now, what what did he tell you about that experience? I mean, you ended up being, you know, a veteran in the the Marine Corps yourself. What what was that conflict like? Because it's come up a lot in conversation. the The Korean conflict is is referred to as the Forgotten War. So I can imagine the service members that fought, and that that's simply what they did was fought and came back must have struggled. But to be a POW of a war that most people didn't acknowledge must have been incredibly hard for his transition home. Well, he though unfortunately, um, they don't talk about it. Um, I mean, every now and then we would get a story out of him, especially near the end of his life. Um, he passed in 1983, so I'd only been in the Marine Corps a short time. Um, he obviously was very proud that I chose to continue the legacy of uh, providing freedom for our country. Um, but there, his stories were untold. Um, when I when we got his box of of uh, ribbons and things, I, I never even knew my dad had purple hearts because he never talked about it. Now, what have you seen with your experience being the Marine Corps until you know basically this millennia? What have you seen as far as um, that conversation? When we look at the World War II generation, they were very tight lipped. It seems like Korea was as well. Vietnam seemed like it, there was an unpacking, but there was a lot of um, negativity towards our service members. But as you touched on, whether it's soldier's heart, thousand yard stare, um, shell shock, PTSD, we're seeing the same thing in all of our veterans. But we're also seeing where the government decides hiding things is always better than being owning it up front. Perfect example is Vietnam. How long did it take the United States government to say, these men and women are suffering from Agent Orange. We need to address it. No, they waited till we lost thousands of Vietnam veterans before they said, oh, maybe it was caused from what they were exposed to in Vietnam. You know, and what people don't realize, it's not about the money. It's about making making them whole again, making them doing everything they can, they, everything they can do to make them as healthy and have quality of life until they do go but our government decides that it doesn't matter what check you write you write a check up to including the rest of your life um, including your life if that's what it turns out to be but yet they want to hide behind the we didn't know answer one thing i see even in the fire service is I am not an intelligent man at all but i went to community college and we did an economics class and basic economics tells you that there is a thing called um, a false economy, something that seems inexpensive up front, but actually is very expensive long term. And that is what happens with our service members, with all these issues. It's what happens with our fire service, with the way that we work them. And so we're actually spending, you know, so much more money, even if you don't care about human life taking care of these veterans and these lawsuits and things rather than actually investing the money up front to make sure they're in a healthy environment in the first place. Correct. If they would have invested the money when they, for instance, Camp Lejeune built a housing development, base housing after 1958, which is when they said the water was contaminated. 
So if they would have done testing of the water, fixed it when they built that housing unit, how many of us would have never suffered the consequences of them telling us, hydrate, 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 make sure you're drinking your water. Um, how many of us would have foregone the uh, exposure? Absolutely. Well, going on your timeline for a second, I don't want to skirt over the fact that you said that your father had 15 children. I'm one of five, and I thought that was a big family. And then your mother had four. So talk to me about that. What was it like being a young girl growing up in almost a village of brothers and sisters? Yeah. Well, first of all, my I, my, my mom and my dad have a big age gap. Um, I, so I have a brother who passed away a few years ago who is actually old enough to be my father. Um, but then I have a the youngest one, uh, Jonathan, who's the same age as my eldest child. They'll be 40 this year. So uh, you, I don't even know them all, to be perfectly honest. Uh, uh, when my sister passed in 2011, I met a sister I never even knew I had. So it's, uh, it, it's you know, it, it's, it's nice. But I mean, uh, like I said, my mom lost her first child when he was 14, killed by a drunk driver. My sister was 50. She had cancer, and now I'm 58, and I'll be her third child that she has to bear. But my dad, we, I guess we're blessed that we watched our, we were able to put our dad to rest. He, the only child, Stevie, my brother, was the only child he had to bury. So uh, I just don't think this is the way it's supposed to be. You're not supposed to bury, your parents aren't supposed to bury you. So it's very hard, heart-wrenching. I agree 100%. Well, speaking of your childhood, so you ended up working in a very physical profession. Um, what were you doing and playing as far as athletics when you were school age? Um, gymnastics, volleyball, and cross country. Beautiful. And which of those do you feel contributed to your success in uniform? Cross country. And what was it about cross country that carried over so well? I mean, obviously, there's an element of running, but I mean, you're you're wearing a pack now. I mean, there's there's a lot of other movements once you actually, you know, in the marine role. Correct. But once you have, you know, if you can run that distance, just adding 25 pounds is, yeah, it's a challenge and it takes some time to get used to, but uh, it makes it easier than if you weren't a runner at all. You're starting now, I'm going to be a runner. Oh, wait, what? I got to carry 25 pounds plus learn how to run. In formation, left, right, left, it's a totally different element at that point. And what about the mental element? My son's a, a, trust, a, excuse me, a track runner and a cross-country runner, and there's the physical fitness side, but obviously there's that kind of pushing through the pain element of these elite runners as well. So what about the mental toughness? Did, did running kind of contribute towards that as well? Um, I, think it, I think when you're out running, that uh, – your 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 mind is clear. You're not really thinking about anything about the finish line, right? Um, I know that when I got out of the Marine Corps, I've run a marathon in all 50 states and D.C. and have done several uh, triathlons and Ironman events as well. And it, it, it takes a special. It's not for everybody, not for the weak at heart. That's for sure. Um, but it, it was fun. I mean, it's. <clears throat> could say you did something that one percent of the country one percent of the world is going to do it's not that you can't do it one percent of the world will try it at least once absolutely what, what about career aspirations when you were in high school were you always dreaming of the marines or was there something else um actually i <laughs> there was a boy i went to high school with and keeping in mind in high school i was 5'10 and i weighed 98 pounds 
soaking wet. Um, there was a guy in high school who got me 20 bucks. I wouldn't make it through boot camp. If I, I go, I think I, I'll join the Marine Corps. And he's like 20 bucks says you wouldn't even make it through boot camp. So I joined just to prove I can make it through boot camp. 20 years later, I walked up to him and told him he owed me $20. With inflation, that's about 200 bucks. <laughs> right, 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 right. He's, and he was, what? I go, not only did I make it through boot camp, but I'm getting, I'm, I'm retiring soon. So I'm going to need my $20 back. <laughs> Beautiful. So. Was that the reunion as well? It was at a reunion, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, then walk me through that then. So you are, you know, th there was an era of prejudice when it came to females in uniform. You actually, actually, before we even do that, I'd love you to to correct me on my my lack of education on how far back female Marines actually go. So let's start with that first. I'm kind of throwing two things at you simultaneously. Talk to me about the history of women in the Marines, and then we'll talk about your specific uh, experience. Uh, World War II. It's uh, there was a poster that was put up in at all Marine Corps recruiting sites, and it was called "Free the Man to Fight." So they would go in and make uniforms. They would uh, work the offices here, do type up their orders, and do all the clerical stuff in World War II. And it it was "Free the Man to Fight." It was. It was crazy, and I've had this conversation with a few people. You think about World War Two, so they, you know, as you said, you've got you know, women filling what would have been, like, I'm assuming, male roles prior to that. You've got Rosie the Riveter. You've got all these male, quote unquote, male roles that are now being filled by women. And then by the 1950s in America, we're back to not only women belong in the kitchen, but also all these colors and creeds fought alongside. And now, in some states, they're stringing black people from trees again. So. Do you have any perspective of what that shift was from that incredibly empowered female movement of World War II to almost a decline a few years later? Well, I, I know that in the Marine Corps, it's always been, um, that has always been, free the man to fight, free the man to fight. Um, as it progressed, it was still women only held roles that were... <coughs> I mean, you could be a firefighter like Sue was. You could be a criminal investigator like myself. You could work in an office. You could be a motor T. You could do mechanics, but you just weren't going to be a, uh, an infantry person. Now, today, fast forward to today, um, every Marine that goes through boot camp is an infantryman. You, you all go through it. Um, and to be honest, there are some women I'd rather stand next to than some men. I'm not going to lie. Oh, same with me in the fire service. Absolutely. That's what's so crazy is, you know, when there's prejudice in my profession, when we're wearing our gear, it's the great equalizer. You can see those right. who can and those who can't. And it's their gender, their sexuality, you know, all that stuff is irrelevant. You either can or you can't. That's the only prejudice that really belongs. Okay. So we never say can or can't. We say, I did and you didn't. You could have, but you chose not to. You know, but yet those are the same people who will hide behind the talking crap about our country, burning a flag. And that's all fine and dandy. But while you're doing that, can you remember I'm get, I provided that very freedom for you to act like an idiot? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a very – and here's the thing. I think we talked about this when we were driving. The sad thing is those people – the the hyper woke or the other side the hyper fascist i mean these are minute 
groups of people, like point whatever percent of the country, yet sadly they get all the airtime. And that's what blows my mind. Right, right. So, you know, and uh, going back to a minute, talking about women in the in the Marine Corps, it's, it's what people don't realize is uh, the Marine Corps has always been the fewer, the prouder. We're the smallest branch of the service there is. Um, and women Marines only make up 0.9% of the military workforce. Less than 1% are women Marines. So we have always been the fewer and the prouder. And uh, that, that, and you know, Marines are a different breed of people. We, uh, we always joke with the Army, Navy, Air Force that when you get out, you say, I was a soldier, I was an airman, I was a sailor. As a Marine, you're like, yeah, I'm a Marine. You know, so, you know, so we, we still have like, we're a fraternity. You know, we have the Marine Corps League. We have Leatherneck Motorcycle Clubs. We we are very close, close-knit. Even within my class of 82, all of the male Marines that w- were in with me, they're like, we are still very close, not only as a class, but as that Marine Corps unit as well. Absolutely. Yeah, That's and I apply that to the fire service as well. There's, you know, they were a former firefighter. I disagree completely. If the car rolls over next to me on the freeway, I'm jumping jumping out. Exactly. So you never stop being a firefighter or a paramedic. Correct. And and people always say, well, you know, you're not a Marine anymore. Just because I was handed a DD-214 doesn't mean my veteran status stops. You know, trust me, I I can almost speak for every um, military person that if they came to us today and said, we need you now on the front line, very few people would say, yeah, I'm not going. Even as sick as I am today, I would say, let's go. Let's go. I'm all in. Absolutely. Well, talk to me about the beginning of this incredible journey. So you're 98 pounds. So male, female, whatever you know, gender you are, that's still very light to do some of the work that you're training to do. So what was your on-ramp experience like personally? Um, well, Physical fitness was always very easy for me. I didn't weigh a lot. So, you know, the flexed arm hang where you got to hang for 70 seconds. I got this 100 push, uh, 70 sit-ups. Like, so that part was easy. Um, learning all the military history was different. The hard part is adjusting from being one of those less than 1% of the women entering into this male-dominant force where at this point military sexual trauma comes into play. Um, and unfortunately, that's another untalked, you know, it's un, it's taboo. Nobody talks about that because, it, first of all, they think it only happens to women. That's sadly mistaken. There's for every one woman who's sexually assaulted, it's three to five men who are sexually assaulted. But again, we're fewer and prouder. So we, we, we tend not to talk about it. It's taboo. Um, unfortunately, Congress believes that. Um, there was a bill that tried to pass where you could go outside into the civilian world and report sexual assault. Um, Congress voted no. You have to keep it within within your ranks. Well, you're just going to report it to someone higher, and at that point, you're you're on your way out. Your your career has ended. So reporting it is out. So you you don't even report it till you get out. And that's pretty sad. So you have to live with this trauma that you're facing 
if you want to make that your career. So I, I kept that trauma for 23 and a half years. So talk to me about that. At what point in your career did you start being personally exposed to this problem? Less than a year. Really? My first duty, I was, not even my true first duty station. I was at Camp Pendleton waiting to ship out to Okinawa. I hadn't even been in a year. And I was sexually assaulted at, I was checking in and the uh, staff sergeant who was in charge of taking me to where I was staying before I shipped out sexually assaulted me. And I remember his words exactly. That's what you signed up for. Unfortunately, that's not what I signed up for, but thanks for putting that in my head. And then what about the, the, the journey after that? I mean, you've just had this sexual assault experience. I mean, mentally, how did you process that? And then, and then legally, did you try, did, did you try and, you know, climb this supposed chain of command that was supposed to help you in this situation? No, no, because I took what he, he meant to heart. This is what, this is the way the Marine Corps is. This is what happens. So at that point, you know, you just try to let it go um, because I love the Marine Corps. Every every waking day of my job in the Marine Corps, I loved, and I I, I do it again twice on Sunday. It was hard, um, always harder for women, of course, uh, than than anything else. But um, no, I just persevered. I got to the point where I got to a certain rank where I was like, hey, I'm somebody who can do something. Don't play with me anymore. I had a, a guest on Carolyn Carroll, who was a helicopter pilot in the army. I think about the same era that you were in, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and it was quite funny because her, once she kind of got the grasp of that, she was just very, very brash and like aggressive towards these men that were aggressive to her. And that worked for her specifically, but she was also talking about some of the, both sides of it, some of the sexual assault, but also, some yeah. of the you know the abuse of sexuality to try and climb ranks and that kind of thing too so that whole spectrum right and you know it's a part of the uh i mean it's very hard for for women to excel in a, especially i was in a in an mos that was predominantly men and so when i would show up weighing nothing and trying to get on you know the criminal enforcement branch it was like what are you going to do well then when I take you out, don't play games. You know, it's a, they, they underestimate uh, the power of some people. And for me, it was just like, I'm, I'm here to prove a point. I'm not your punching bag. I'm not, you know, I'm not that. I'm a Marine. I, I walked, stood on the same yellow footprint you stood on. Let's go. Now, you talked about getting ready to ship off to Okinawa. So kind of walk me through your journey to the, the uh, criminal enforcement side. Um, you never start there. You start as an MP, then you become an accident investigator, and then a criminal investigator. Okinawa is a, a total, it's, I didn't like it. Um, I think because I was young, I was afraid of the country. You know, I'd never been out of the United States before that. I'm 18 years old. Um, I stayed on the base the whole time. Wouldn't leave. Wouldn't leave. People are like, come on, we're going to, nah, you have a good time. Not nah, going. You know, try to just stayed guarded. Uh, but then you start traveling and you realize this is amazing. What, where, what else could you do where you could do this? You know what I mean? Absolutely. Well, I lived in Japan for 15 months myself and it's an amazing culture. But, you know, when, when you were there, I mean, you're only talking, you know, what, 40 years after the end of World War II. So I was right. there the, t the year 2000. So even then, 
there was hostility amongst some of the older Japanese. Ironically, until they discovered I was British, then for some reason there was admiration. I think it was the right. parallel of the cultures, maybe. But but yeah, so I could see how forty years they prior it'd be even, or twenty years prior, excuse me, it would be even more hostile back then. Yeah, they don't. Uh, Okinawa is not a big fan of military people. The the people of Okinaw Okinawans are not fans of ours at all. Yeah, well, we put a base in their island, so you know it's understandable. It probably feels like an invasion even to today. Correct, correct. Now, what about the health of the people? I had a, a couple of guests that have been there before. I don't know if you were able to see this with the people maybe that, that helped on the base, but Okinawa is heralded as one of the most healthy places on planet Earth based on their nutrition, their mindset, their playfulness. Did you see a lot of... Um, uh, long lifespans in in the um, the residents of Okinawa that you interacted absolutely. with, absolutely, uh, because they don't eat. <coughs> sorry, they don't eat the way they eat the way they've eaten the, the same way for centuries. They they don't eat McDonald's, Burger King, Kentucky Fried Chicken, chips, salsa. They don't. That's not who they are, and that's who they'll never be. They get that way when they come here and. And decide, wow, this is pretty good. And that's why you see Japanese pe Orientals, Asians, heavier here than you would ever see over in their own country. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you've seen that sadly with cigarettes in Japan. When I was there, everyone smoked, even the, what the, uh, the version of the oh, YMCA yeah. they had. We had a, there was a beautiful, massive gym that we got to use, but then there was a cafeteria where you could get coffee and, you know, something to eat after with no partition and you could smoke in that cafeteria. So you're working out smelling cigarette smoke. So I actually became pass passively addicted for a very short time when I was over there. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. But yeah, so they have those bad habits and drinking is a bad habit, but overall their, their health is untouchable compared to ours. So what about the journey to MP? Again, you just, you're a slightly built woman. You know, what was, what was the, what were the things that you brought to that role that allowed you to be not successful just in that, but to progress all the way through? I think, uh, well, you know, I think with the building, the Marine Corps breaks you down and then builds you all the way back up to where they want you to be. I think that, uh, and I don't know, I just think your tenacity about, you know, uh, not only loving the Marine Corps, but loving law. This is the law. These are the rules. We don't break them. Um, and me, I just, I would stand toe to toe with you. I didn't care who you were. Didn't care how big you were. Don't care. Now, were you boxing by that point? Uh, yeah, 1985, I started boxing. So talk to me about that, because I'm sure that, that probably helped as you were in that role. How did you get into the world of boxing? And, and you know, where did you find yourself at your pinnacle in that sport? Uh, my roommate uh, at the barracks, uh, tie was a boxer. And she said, you should just come work out with me. One workout led to another, led to me joining the boxing team, leading us to be part of the HBO Silver Bullet team, So, uh, which was amazing. Yeah, it definitely kept the stamina. It, it helps a lot, for sure. And what weight did you fight at? Uh, feather. Which was how many pounds in, in the female division? Uh, 102 could weigh more than 102 100, 105 i think was the max you could weigh okay so you stayed roughly around that weight a lot of your career then. oh yeah the entire career okay. entire career yeah so as the mp again you hear um you know things are kept within and i've had people on the show who um have talked about you know some of the 
the uh, the abandonment within the military. And obviously, again, these are certain individuals in certain key roles. You know, this is not everyone in the military by any by any means. But and then you hear about the Ferez document and how that protects a lot of people from you know the ownership of mistakes that we can learn from, that we can grow from, that we can stop other service members from suffering from. With with the MP, were you exposed at that point to, you know, whether it's a sexual assaults, whether it was, um, you know, violent assaults outside the base, any of these things that we kind of hear of? And bearing in mind, I'm a civilian, so this is totally out of my wheelhouse. I never saw it outside, outside of base. Never saw it. Never. What about in the military role? Oh, sorry, the military law enforcement role, the same thing that have been subjected, you've been subjected to yourself. Did you see any outcries or anything where you were in that role? Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, though, once they make that claim, their career is over. They're done. You make the claim and they transfer you. But once they transfer you to a different base, they've already warned that you're a troublemaker and they're going to find a way to out you. Now, from what you're hearing, is this something that's changing? I mean, has it improved from from back when you were in? Or uh, I would like to think so, but again, best kept secrets. Yeah, because I mean, we do have a series of murders and you know all kinds of things. One of the, my guests uh, has um, Save Our Service Members as his organization, and uh, he's got a whole like gallery of people that you know either died from medical malpractice or suicide or murder, and it's just pages and pages and pages of people that we, as the regular people, don't really get to hear the stories from. Correct. So I mean, that's I think just the way it's going to be is uh again, it's untold. They don't want to. They don't want to tell you that this is the way uh, they're just like I said, they just hide everything until someone decides that they're going to talk about it. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So in your role, because I want to get to Lejeune in a second, but just as we're progressing through the the kind of um, the titles that you held in the criminal investigation role, what were the cases that you were normally dealing with then? Uh, Mom, I'm going to take the stairs. I'm taking the stairs. You can't get over Oh, never mind. I'll take the elevator. Sorry, we're walking out. Um, yeah, we murder, rape, um, domestic violence was huge. Theft was huge. Larceny. You know, same things that you uh, deal with in the civilian world is what you're going to deal with out, in the, out in, on the base, any base. Just like a city within a, a state, you know. So talk to me about when you were stationed at Lejeune then. So I was there in 1982 for six months at a base called Camp Johnson, which is all where all the schools are at. There was no, nobody told me that the water was contaminated. They, their thing was make sure you drink enough water to stay hydrated. Cause it's, you know, not everybody's used to that water. I mean, that weather. Um, but we watched buildings being built. So, you know, you're building new buildings. Are you really telling me you didn't test that water? For real? I, I call BS. I think, you know, hiding your stuff, deniability is is, is a great thing in the in, with our government. They would rather deny it than own it. My world is you should just own it. You know, if they would have corrected it then, how many lives would have been saved? When did you start hearing about that actually coming out, that there was an issue and that potentially you <laughs> might be affected? Um... 2004 or 5. So you're talking about 20 years later. 
Correct. And at that point, you think, well, it can't, it's, it's not going to affect me. I've been out too long. Well, surprise, here we are 40 plus years later, and, and it got me. You know, I, I had genetic testing at Loyola when the water study first came out, so I could see if I carried any genetic tracers for cancer and I don't carry any genetic tracers so I should have never had cancer at all in my entire life let alone three times so so you said three times so walk me through that journey so the first time I had ovarian cancer which was stage four which I didn't carry a gene for um four years ago I had stage one bladder cancer and then this time this was the most aggressive um, I was diagnosed in November, January, it had spread February, uh, end of January, beginning of February, it was nothing except for in my entire body. So there's, there's no treatments for me. So had the government owned this a long time ago and put testing into place for every single person who ever drank one glass of water at Camp Lejeune. Had the testing have been there just to test us, they probably would have saved hundreds of thousands of lives. But again, we're not testing anybody. And then when you file a claim that says, I believe I got this because of the water, then it's, it takes two, two to three years for them to process your claim. And odds are you're not, they're still going to deny that you got that cancer from the water. But for me, it's really easy. I have proof that I, I don't have any cancer cells, never had any. So now how did I get the cancer? And there's only one common denominator, and that's the water at Camp Lejeune. Now talk to me about what, when they finally did come out with, with the tests, what was found in the water? Uh, I, the list is way too long to, to uh, list. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable the amount of impurities in there. Um, but, it, it, I mean, you turn on the faucet, it looked like, perfectly good drinking water. I mean, you couldn't see sediments or anything like that in the water for sure. So it was like a hidden thing. It was just, I don't know, just too many things to, to list. I mean, I think when I got my packet, it was like 24 pages long of, of what to look for, what was in the water, um, when it, when it, when you could have been affected, just too much to, to process. Because when I did the research, half a million Marines have been diagnosed with some sort of illness from this particular source. Yeah, and that's just the Marines. That's not their family members. It's not their wives. It's not their wives who lost children due to miscarriages because they drank the water. It's, you know, nobody talks about those right now. It's like, oh, there's a half a million Marines. Well, that's great. But what about our spouses and our children? What about all the children who have been born with birth defects because their mothers drank the water or they drank the water as a child? What well, what about those? What about them? They're not going to release that study anytime soon. And where were the contaminants supposed to have come from? What was the, the source of such dirty water in the first place? The pipes, the water pipes. The pipes themselves. From, and, yeah, and Camp Lejeune is self-contained. So if you lived out in town, if you lived in Jacksonville, and you never drank the water on the base or any of the surrounding bases, you were good. You probably won't get sick. 
But if you're like me and I lived in the barracks and everything I did, I swam, I cooked, I drank all that stuff. Yeah, it's from the water. <coughs> now, I sadly have heard so many stories from the fire service in states where we have what they call cancer presumption. So they will, you know, supposedly acknowledge that a career in the fire service and what we're exposed to, which ironically is just a small piece of the pie of why we're actually all dying, um, then, okay, then they will accept um, financial responsibility. But the number of people that I've heard, even from people within insurance companies that have said, we'll just keep fighting them till they die. Talk to me about the resistance, if any, maybe maybe the military's been amazing, I don't know. But if there's been any resistance to the ownership and the financial obligations from this issue. Well, now they don't have a choice but to own it. it it's it's there. It's on every television channel uh, and across the United States. Um, so they don't, they don't have a choice but to own that they contaminate our water and they, they're, they're killing us. Um, for a long time, it had to be you who filed the claim and it had to be you who collected on the claim. Well, uh, finally, the Secretary of the Navy says, no, you can name three people uh, under you that if you go, that they will be the ones to uh, that can collect. So I have like, I have my, my husband, my daughter, my granddaughter, that when I'm gone, one of them, should my claim ever settle, one of them will get, get my money. But for a long time, if you died during your claim, your claim went dead. There's no getting, you get nothing. So, you know, again, they were best to be silent so they didn't have to pay any money out. And again, I know I don't speak for just myself. It's not the money. Just give me my quality of health. Back. Take your cancer. I'd rather have my life. You know, I'd rather continue living a happy married life with my husband in Florida. You know, riding my motorcycle, which I can't even pick up. I had to sell. Um, I didn't want to spend $50,000 looking for alternative treatments either. But yet that money's gone, you know. But, you know, all they had to do is do the right thing. And they chose not to. You know, you, you relied on us to do the right thing. You know, you relied on us to write a blank check up to including the price of our lives. But you didn't want to protect our lives. We protected you, but you don't want to protect us, which is pretty sad. Well, we were talking the other day, you know, we saw the same thing after 9-11. I mean, so many first responders were heralded as heroes. And, you know, I'm sure most would be embarrassed by that title. But what they did was pretty amazing in those, those, that day and obviously the weeks following. And then fast forward a few short years, those families are fighting just for some sort of basically death benefits as their loved ones who were on the pile are now dying of, you know, terminal cancers. So we're seeing we're seeing this in first responder professions, we're seeing this in the military. And it blows my mind because a Marine or a firefighter, we put our lives on the line for other people. Now these people that are in no danger at all won't even advocate for the people that keep them safe. Correct. That's you know the the only good thing I could say is I, I, I really believe our government has started to believe in their heart of hearts that they should own stuff a whole lot quicker. Uh, fast forward to Afghanistan. They now own, I mean, they are clearly saying there's burn pit, you know, 
if you were exposed to a burn pit in Afghanistan, get these tests done. Um, earplugs, the simple things as if you wore these earplugs, you know, we want to see you, we want to help you get, you know, this and that. So I think, I think it's finally realized that it was probably going to be cheaper just to, to treat us early on rather than to hide the fact. Absolutely. Or, or proactively don't go low bid on whatever it is that you're doing. I mean, the, the Hunter Seven right. Foundation talks about the burn pits a lot. And when you think about it, I mean, there has to have been a better way of removing waste than setting fire to it and letting the whole camp breathe the fumes. Correct. Absolutely correct. There had to be a better way, but, you know, you got to do the, the, unfortunately, the government takes the cheapest way out. And that's sad, but true. So I want to get to, to where you are now physically, but before we do, just kind of reverse engineering a moment. You had an entire career in the Marines. Um, you know, you went you went in, as you said, almost fr from a bet as a young woman. 17. A lot of us, when we're in uniform, the danger is you identify as that thing and you, and you sometimes lose who you are and, and buy into what you do as your identity instead. Did you struggle when you transitioned out finally, or did you find yourself kind of um, moving into another position and, and, and having an easier transition than some of our men and women in uniform? Um, I thought, hold on a second, scrambled egg, uh, right post way. Um, I found um, for the first couple of years, I didn't do anything. I uh, literally did nothing. I traveled. Um, Tried to try to get grasp of what round. I don't have to wear a uniform every day. I don't have to do this. I don't have to do that. Um, things like that. It was it's it's hard for anybody to transition from that lifestyle. Twenty three and a half years of waking up, going to work. This is my job. That's my job. But then once I decided, you know, I'm not going to feel sorry for myself. Uh, it was a very grateful career. Um, I, I went into private security for celebrities for a while, uh, and I sold houses, I sold cars, and then I went back to work for the federal government. I did stunts alongside being a firefighter, stunt work, and occasionally, depending on who the people I work with, I would have a moment where I'd just come off shift and maybe, you know, help being part of a team that helped save a life or maybe didn't you know had a loss of life and then i would go and do this show and people would be queening out because their costume wasn't right or you know whatever it was and it was it was quite jarring when you just been part of a very selfless profession to come into one that in some arenas rather than other people being most important now that individual is the most important thing in the world to themselves did you have uh, any kind of experiences of that when you were working with the celebrities at all? They are the most entitled people <laughs> in the world. Now, not all of them, because I can name several celebrities that uh, are are wholeheartedly um, military, military, military. We love you. Um, and then you have those that probably don't even know we have a military, to be perfectly honest. Um, but... I just, I, I, people always ask me stuff and, you know, I always say, who are you? Describe you to me. And when people say that to me, who are you? I'm a United States Marine. That's who I am. I'm an American and I'm a United States Marine. That's what, that's what defines me. That defines me. Beautiful. 
Well, speaking of that, so you have this amazing journey. You're a young athlete. You enter in the Marines. You're part of the boxing team, you know, physically in great shape, mentally, obviously very resilient. What has been that down, downward spiral of your health because of this? I mean, where, where are we finding you today on uh, March 18th, 2023? Um, can't wash my hair. Can't put a shirt on by myself. I probably couldn't walk two blocks. Um, I'm the one who helps people. People aren't supposed to be coming to my house helping me. I'm supposed to be helping you. So it's, it's, a, it's a huge, huge, huge role reversal. You know, uh, I know. I was, I was get, given a death sentence. I get it. Doesn't mean I have to like it. You know, I was given six months to a year and I'm three months into the six. And, you know, I looked at my mom and said, I won't be here for my 59th birthday in July. I I know. I, I know that when I was first given the, the death sentence, I call it, um, I felt great. I mean, I was still going to work. I was still doing what I do. But I know that from... February 17th till today, I, I feel like 25% downward spiral of my health. You know, I can't pick up a motorcycle, so I had to sell it. I can't get on the, I can't even lift my body onto the back of my husband's motorcycle. Um, I can't, I have a hard time standing up by myself, sitting down, getting in and out of a shower. I mean, just medial things that, you know, <coughs> you take I can't stand in my kitchen and cook because I get tired you know I can't take my dog for a walk all these things people take for granted well you probably should absolutely well I mean we heard you just coughing then as well I mean talk to me about um the the medical evaluations that you had done and, and you know were there any areas where someone missed something that they shouldn't have because again you know it's it's people have hundreds of, of patients that walk through the door, but it's always important if, you know, there's a cautionary tale to pull from, you know, someone's medical journey. And I've had people on here where a simple medical misdiagnosis has caused them to go from stage one to stage four. Yeah. And I never was at stage one. I was always stage four. There was no in-betweens. I had this cough. I've had a cough, this cough, probably for nine years. And no one said, I had one doctor who told me I should quit smoking. I was like, I'm right on that because I don't smoke. This will be really easy. Um, it took my primary care doctor to say, you know, one of your blood works is coming back. I don't like it. I'm going to send you to a rheumatologist. I think you may have lupus. I go to that doctor and he says, what's that cough? And I'm like, I don't play a doctor on TV and I'm not one in real life. You have the pretty white coat. I think you should probably tell me November 20th, he does an x-ray. They think it's an embolism on my left lung, uh, but they can't do anything till they do a CT scan with dye. That takes till January 18th. So from November 20th to January 18th, this embolism is now a mass on my left lung, on my liver and adrenal gland. Two weeks later, I have a PET scan 
and it's on my brain, right, left lung, liver, adrenal gland, lymph nodes, spine, and pelvis. So, you know, it's, and who knows where it's at today, you know, a month later, who knows where it's at now? Well, you talked when we were chatting about telling your people, your friends, some of the people, your, your friends, your classmates at the reunion about till I see you again. So talk to me about your spirituality and what you're leaning into right now. Yeah. So my husband and I have always talked about what ifs, you know, what if you get sick? What if I get sick? So we always know what we're going to do. Always have known what we're going to do. Um, I, I'm, I consider myself blessed to be on this journey where I get to come back and I get to say, see you on the other side to all my friends and my family. And I get to say, see you on the other side, mom. But I'll, I'll tell Stephanie and Steve, you, you know, you look at, you still think about them every day. Um, I could have gone out and got hit by a car and not been able to say goodbye or see you on the other side to anybody, you know, and here I, I'm very blessed. I get to see my classmates, my friends, my family. Um, so I, I just, I, you know, I'm a very simple person. I'm going to be cremated. My ashes distributed amongst my grandchildren, which I have 17 of, um, f- five children. Um, my mom, <coughs> there's no big hoopla. They'll do a 21 gun salute, fold the flag, put the bullets inside, and hopefully they'll have a big party when I'm after. But we are going to have a celebration of life when I return to Florida. So I can tell those people in Florida, my friends and down there, see on the other side. Because it truly isn't goodbye. Because I, I truly believe that you you will eventually see everyone on the other side. Absolutely. Well, you talked as well about the the death benefit side from you know the government social security. I think it's important that we impart that as well. So we have these men and women that serve whether it's in uniform, whether it's just simply paying into their social securities or pensions, and then they pass away and the other partner is is left high and dry. So talk to me about that dynamic in your family. So if I was to collect SSI, I could get it tomorrow because I'm terminal. But because I did the right thing and I had a job and I worked, um, the onset of my condition was November 20th. I don't get a check for six months. I won't get my first check till June. And you don't even get your full amount. It's a certain amount that you get based on when well, you're just not di- you're just dying, you're not retiring. So and then once I die, my husband doesn't even get survivor benefits until he turns 60. So um I think I think the government really needs to re reevaluate terminal illness among people who have paid worked their whole life and paid into that system. It's their money. That's my money you're holding for six months. Why? Can I just have my money back? Can I get a refund? You know, it, 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 it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Well, again, it's, there's so many, so, so many times where red tape and politics is totally devoid of humanity. And I think, you know, what we've talked about is the root cause of how you got ill in the first place and where you are now as far as, you know, people stepping in and doing the right thing from, you know, Social Security or, you know, whatever it is. This is the, there's such a disconnection. And this is why there are so many stories like this, you know, whether it's, like I said, the Ferez doc- doctrine where people have got ill in boot camp and died because there was medical malpractice or suicide in, you know, a cell after being given a belt to hang yourself with. I mean, I've had these stories on the show and it's heartbreaking, but it's so important 
you know, if someone's terminally ill or if they've actually passed, that we honor their suffering or their loss by making sure it doesn't happen again. So we've talked about a few things. Anywhere else you want to go to make sure that people understand elements of your journey and or people that you know that that just isn't being spoken about, you know, in, in this white noise of, of divisional news, quote unquote news that we get bombarded with every day. I, I think uh, I think there's only one message. Scream it from the rooftop. If it happened to you, it's happening to others. You know, we you know, everyone sees the ads. If you are at Camp Lejeune, call this attorney. How about if we just all show up at Congress and say thanks for killing us, but what can we do? What more can you do for us? What can you do for those who haven't who haven't been diagnosed with cancer yet? What tests can you do to prevent it from ever getting to a state, you know, stage four? You know, stop it at one, stop it from ever occurring. What what more can you do for me? That that's it. But not enough again, it's an unspoken thing. Nobody talks about it. Well, I want to throw some closing questions at you before we let you go. Um, you, again, have, have had such a, an amazing journey. Um, the first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Um, believe it or not, my mom's a huge reader and I do not read. Um, who Stole My Cheese and Don't Eat the Frog? Brilliant. All right. What about a movie and or documentary? Any of those that you love? I, this is really weird. I am a huge serial killer documentary junkie. If there's movies about uh, serial killers or the worst neighbor next door who did, that's where I'm at. You know, and again, it, from my background, those, yeah, I'm, anything to do with serial killers. Well, speaking of that, I kind of glossed over your your criminal investigation side. What were some of the career cases that you worked on during that that long period that you were in that role? Um, you'll see, actually, there's a couple that were made for uh, Lifetime movies. One was a May off. He was white. She was black. She got promoted over him. He killed her, and the body was never found. Um, but he was convicted without a body. Another one was a staff sergeant's wife in Camp Pendleton paid two junior Marines, E2 and 3, to kill their spouse, and she promised them part of his insurance money. Wow. And, and I'm assuming she was caught too, and they were as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. They sing. Lance Corporals can't be quiet. They'll sing like birds. <laughs> they don't know any better. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Wow. Um, and I don't know if Sue Shepard has ever been on your program. Not yet. No. Then she and this is this is a part I love about my friend Sue. She's no bigger than a minute. So she's no, she's just like me, but she's a whole, you know, when I started my career, 
And I think people underestimate. So any woman in the first responders a role should be on your podcast, without a doubt. Sue Shepard's no bigger than a minute. I'm going to be honest. There's no way in hell I could have carried the pack she carried being a firefighter. There's no way possible I could have done anything that a firefighter does today. Utmost respect to those people. I'm not, bur- I'm not running. I'll run into a bullet. I'm not running into no damn burning building, buddy. That's, that's what you, no, uh-uh. Nope. I'm good with chasing bullets. That's it. But any female uh, first responder, military person, I think we're all underestimated about what our power is and about what we can do. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's like we touched on before, all the good ones. You know, there are people that are male, female, you know, whatever that are in our role that aren't good, but people that have managed to excel in that role, you know, whatever their background, whatever their gender, um, those are the ones I adore that are in our full fire, firefighter gear and they're standing right behind me or I'm making sure I'm standing right behind them. I mean, it's ownership is for all of us. Right, right, right. Beautiful. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure where people can find you online, what do you do to decompress these days? Uh, believe it or not, I don't need to decompress. I'm at peace with myself. And probably for the first time in 20 years, I am mentally, I mentally feel okay. I, I don't have a care in the world. I don't have to worry about getting up, messing up somebody's claim. I don't need to decompress. I'm going to do me. And that's it. I'm going to do me. But how did you get there to that point? Um, again, it was a lot of talking when I between me and my husband that said, if this ever happened, this is the path I want to take. And I'm okay. I, I could I could go home tonight on my flight. I could go to bed tonight and not wake up and know that I did everything I wanted to do in my life. Um, leave my husband in a good space. Leave my family knowing that I'll, I'll, I'll see you on the other side. What I'm sure people listening would love to reach out. I'm sure there's, there's probably going to be people that were in Camp Lejeune the time that you were and that probably want to you know, learn more about that or just simply just reach out because they've been moved by your story today. Where are the best places online and or social media to, to reach out to you? Um, Instagram, AmeliaLara1964. Email AmeliaLaraIN at gmail.com. And Facebook, I'm Amelia Lara. Beautiful. Well, Amy, I want to say thank you so much. Um, I mean, thank you to Sue first for connecting us. But firstly, thank you for, you know, like you said, more than two decades wearing the uniform, being a Marine. Um, but secondly, for giving a voice to, I'm assuming, tens if not hundreds of thousands of people that can't even tell their story anymore so i want to thank you so so much for being so courageous today coming on the show and and telling your story yep it was my pleasure and thank you for having me i appreciate that 